Hi friends of Issaquah Christian Church, this is Jared Gibbs, and this week I'm going to be taking us through a quick word, picking up where we left off last week in Acts chapter 16. Last week, if you were with us, um, you remember that we studied the previous text together in church, and as a way to recap that, um, let me just kind of refresh us on what happened, okay? Paul and Silas set sail from Troas, and a few days later, they make it to Philippi. While in Philippi, they go down to a riverside to pray. And when they arrive, they strike up a conversation with a group of women. And in that group of women was a purple cloth selling, God-worshipping person named Lydia. The Lord opens Lydia's heart, and she and her family become baptized. And she insists that Paul and Silas should stay with them at her home. Later on, going back to the river, Paul and Silas encounter a slave girl with a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She follows Paul and Silas for days, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. Paul gets so annoyed, so greatly annoyed, as some translations say, that eventually he turns to her and says to the demon spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it left her instantly. Okay, so I'm going to pick this up right at verse 19 here. And before I start reading, I do want to give a content warning. There are some graphic images of, of physical and mental abuse that go on in this passage. And I am going to ask us to be especially mindful of the way that Paul and Silas's bodies are likely feeling, as I think that it provides us a really good detail and insight to the story. Um, that being said, for some of us, um, imagining their pain will be challenging and perhaps uncomfortable. Uh, and sadly for others, it's it, it, it might actually be pretty tangible. And so I just want to give that um, to you so that you know it's coming. Picking up in verse 19. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities of the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them to be stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure that they did not escape. So the jailer put them in the innermost cell, the, the, the inner dungeon, and clamped their feet to the stocks. Okay, let's take a moment here. Let's give some consideration to what Paul and Silas are likely feeling physically. First, it says that they were dragged. They were dragged on the ground. If you get dragged on the ground, you're going to have scrapes. Um, you're going to have uh, burns. You're going to have rashes. Those surface level injuries that if you've ever had one hurt so badly and they take forever to heal. Right after that, then it says they, they were stripped, which would have actually physically hurt those surface level wounds if you've ever tried to put on a piece of clothing over one of those wounds without a bandage, you know that it hurts that anything touches it. But it's also an act of humiliation. So there's this physical pain and now there's mental pain of being stripped down in front of a crowd. A crowd, by the way, that is now joining in on the beating. After they are stripped, it says that they were beaten with rods. We're talking about the blunt force bruising, broken bones level of pain. After all of that, then they're thrown into the innermost cell, the most secluded area. This translation, the, the, the NLT says the dungeon where their feet, which are likely also wounded, are chained to the ground. They can't move. 
So they're sitting in there. Wounds are not been cleaned. There's no bandages, no neosporin, no gauze, nothing. So then we read on. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening. I'm sorry, but this blows my mind. If I had just experienced what they experienced, my response would be silence. I would be devastated. I would be heartbroken. I would be in a lot of pain. But they choose to go a different route. They decide to pray and to sing in a really important detail that I don't want you to miss. The other prisoners are listening. Verse 26. Suddenly there was a massive earthquake. And the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open. And the chains of every prisoner fell off. Can you imagine this? Can you picture it? Can you put yourself in the room? A room where a violent earthquake shakes the walls off of the building. I don't know what heaven will be like. um, But in the event that I could just go talk to Silas or go talk to Paul... I have serious questions about this story. I want to know what it was like to be in the room. I want to know what song they were singing when the earthquake happened. I would, I mean, it's an amazing, amazing thing that happens here. Oh, and another really important detail, the chains of every prisoner, those prisoners that were listening to the singing and the praying, the chains of every prisoner fell off. Now, we're not given details on why these people were in prison. Maybe they're guilty, maybe they're innocent. But it didn't matter. Divine intervention sets them free, whether they deserved it or not, it didn't matter. God didn't just cause a jailbreak for his two disciples, he did it for everybody in the room. And so we see this beautiful image of God's presence being magnified through these two men who were beaten and bloodied, now singing and praying divine intervention through the action of singing and it causes the walls of this building to fall to the ground what's crazy is that this isn't even the good part of the story listen to this verse 27 the jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open he assumed the prisoners had escaped so he drew his sword to kill himself why would he do this why do you think that he would do this that that this would be his response that that is it just because he failed at his job and, and maybe the, the punishment was going to be worse than death itself? But he's very clearly afraid here. So then in verse 28, Paul says, Stop! Don't kill yourself. We are all here. Now here we see the divine appointment. Remember last week we see Paul and Silas meeting Lydia and the Lord opens Lydia's heart. She and her whole family get saved and baptized and ultimately she ends up inviting Paul and Silas into her home. God orchestrates their connection and the result is that people get saved. So as we read on, verse 29, the jailer calls for lights and runs to the dungeon and falls down trembling before Paul and Silas and says, uh, or he brings them out and asks, what must I do to be saved? You see, everything from the moment Paul gets greatly annoyed to this moment, it's it's all been leading to this. Keep in mind, the physical bodies of Paul and Silas are still completely wounded. But in spite of the pain that they are experiencing, they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. 
And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. So we have to see this parallel between Lydia and the jailer, right? They, they both meet Paul and Silas through a divine appointment, ultimately leading to their salvation and the salvation of their households. And their response is the same. Come to my house. Let me feed you. Let me wash your wounds. Let me give you a place to say. Let me give you safety. This is an amazing story. It's one of my favorite in the Bible. But the question is, how does a story like this impact us? What relevance does it have to us today? Well, first, believers singing together will always bear a powerful witness to the gospel truth. Matthew 18, 20 says, uh, and Jesus says, For where two or three gather in my name, I am there with them. You see, these two guys gathered, albeit against their will, they gathered in a jail cell. So what did they do? They had a worship service. They prayed and they sang and God revealed himself in the most amazing way that we see. And the result is prisoners are set free and families get saved. So my question for you is, and the question for us to consider is, do you think that this was Paul and Silas's intentions when they started singing and praying? Do you think that they were trying to have some kind of a worship service to, to minister to the prisoners and the guards? Uh, or how about this? Do you think that in their singing, they were concerned about how good their voices sounded or not? I tend to doubt it. If I put myself in their position, I'm not sure that I would have the physical strength or the mental capacity to lead others in a worship gathering. But it didn't matter. God used them anyway. And it was, it was really only after it happened that they realized that this was God's plan all along. Divine intervention leading to a divine appointment and the result is the same. People get saved. Singing together will bear witness to the gospel truth. Okay. Secondly, singing together is something that we are created to do. Psalm 139 is a bit of a, a life verse for me. My grandmother used to read it to me all the time. Um, I had a, a room at their house and it was in a frame on the, uh, on the nightstand next to the bed. Psalm 139 is a great, a great psalm, but I'll, I'll read verse 4 for you. I love this. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it. Even the bad stuff that I say. Even the mean things that I say. He knew it. He knows all of it. Psalm 139 verses 13 and 14. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your worksmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. I love this imagery. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Let's talk about complexity for a second. Let's talk about the voice. I believe that the voice is the most complex and challenging instrument on earth to learn how to use properly. 
First, it's the only instrument that's unique to its owner. No two voices are the same. Even identical twins have different voices. And secondly, it's the only instrument that exists that you cannot see and you cannot touch. As a result, using it, and more specifically making desirable sounds with it, can be more challenging than just learning how to play an instrument. Why? Because less of your unconscious mind gets to participate in solving the problem or solving the equation, how should I sing properly? So it makes sense that some of us, uh, for some of us, that singing is really challenging. However, on a physiological level, we are all designed to sing. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. There is a physiological way to sing properly. And we are all designed to do it. So let me break down the complexities of the vocal tract for you. And for those of you that don't know, I am a vocal coach. Um, I teach other singers how to use their voices according to its natural design. So I approach this subject from a biblical perspective here, but I also approach it from a scientific perspective. And I know it sounds crazy, but yes, the Bible and science can share the same perspective on things. And that's a great thing. Okay. The first part of your instrument is your lungs. We call that the respirator. They're responsible for pushing air up to the vocal cords, which then causes the vocal cords themselves to vibrate hundreds of times per second. That sound is then carried by that same airflow up into the head where that sound resonates. That is how sound is created. In fact, every time you produce a sound of any kind, talking, laughing, humming, singing, this is the process that's happening. Now, this information on its own isn't necessarily helpful. It's a cool fact, it's true, but it doesn't help you become a better singer, it doesn't make singing more comfortable, and it doesn't make singing more intuitive. But singing, and more specifically singing together, singing in a group of people, goes well beyond the physiological. Several studies have been done over the last 10 to 15 years showing what happens to the brain when somebody sings in a group of people who are also singing. Your brain floods your body with endorphins and hormones, specifically dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin, but there are others too. Sarah Wilson, a clinical neuropsychologist uh, for the uh, University of Melbourne says, when we sing, large parts of our brain light up with activity. She looked, um, she did a study um, several years ago in, in 2011, which looked at how the brain reacts when, uh, when we sing by giving volunteers a, a varying vocal ability, an MRI, while they're singing. She says, there is a singing network in the brain which is quite broadly distributed. When we speak, the hemisphere of the brain dealing with language lights up, as we might expect, but when we sing, both sides of the brain spark into life. We also see involvement of the emotion networks of the brain, regions that control the movements that we need to produce sound and articulation also light up. So we see singing gets uh, an activity in the brain that's just different than normal communication. By Shali Mukherjee, uh, the Southeast Asia Regional Liaison for the World Federation of Music Therapy says this, the physical exertion involved in singing, the filling of our lungs, the firm control of vocal cords, the movements of our mouth and body, is among the reasons why it can boost our mood, 
Singing is an aerobic exercise which sees the release of endorphins, the brain's feel-good chemicals. Endorphins are related to an overall lifted feeling of happiness. It gives a feeling of euphoria, so it's all associated with the reduction in stress. In any situation, whether it is under stress or with physical ailments, illness, psychological deprivation, music has the potential to affect our body and our mind. And it's not surprising that being in a better mood has all sorts of good benefits to us, right? When, you're, when your mood is up, you respond to stress factors better and in a more positive way. You enhance your sleeping patterns. You reduce anxiety. Um, and, and it also engages potentially the body's greatest stress reliever, breathing. For anyone that's ever experienced a panic attack, you'll be all too familiar with the terrifying feeling of not being able to catch your breath. During a panic attack, you expel more gas uh, than your cells can make. This imbalance in carbon dioxide can cause dizziness and anxiety, among other symptoms. Conversely, deep diaphragmatic breathing allows a full oxygen exchange to occur in the lungs' cells, activating the body's parasympathetic nervous system, which then slows the heart rate, dilates the blood vessels, and as a result, lowers your blood pressure. That's right, singing is healthier for you than Cheerios. That endorphin and hormonal release that one experiences with singing in a group of people gives that person four main benefits. A sense of belonging, a sense of joy, a sense of safety, and a sense of being loved. These come primarily from those neurotransmitters, the dopamine, which is pleasure, and serotonin, which is the anti-anxiety, antidepressant uh, naturally occurring as well as the hormone oxytocin, which promotes a feeling of trust and bonding and also helps alleviate stress. So why are those four things so valuable? It's because they speak to the needs of people. Who among us needs a sense of belonging? Just think about this for a second. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's someone you know. I think of the orphan, the widow, the outcast, the seeker, the grandparents who desperately wish their grandchildren would call them more. People come to church seeking a sense of belonging. They may not even realize it, but they are yearning for it. When we make the conscious decision to sing together, we are not only offering this to ourselves, but we're offering it to everybody who walks in the room. How about a sense of joy? Who among us needs a sense of joy? I think of the brokenhearted and the depressed, the grieving, the, the person who comes to church who's totally faking it, trying to keep themselves together to make sure that everyone knows that they're fine. People come to church seeking joy and you offer it to them by making the decision to sing together and intentionally inviting them to participate with you. Who among us needs a sense of safety? I think of the abused, the wounded, the injured, the persecuted, the, the actually persecuted. People come to church seeking a sense of safety. It's why we use the word sanctuary. 
that need will be met with the action of singing together. Who among us needs a sense of being loved? I think it's everybody. I think it's everybody, but it's especially those who come who feel ashamed. The guilty. How about this one? The other. If you don't know what I mean by the other, um, flip on Fox News or CNN sometime. They'll tell you all about the other. The other is the is the kind of person who's responsible for all the bad things happening in this world. Your enemies. Your enemies need a sense of being loved. Every single one of us who's listening to this is carrying some level of guilt. People come to church to feel loved. Loved by God, loved by people, And singing together builds trust and validates every single person who walks in the room. It says, I see you, you belong here, you are safe here, you are loved here. Singing makes us more empathetic. It makes us conscious of the needs and well-being of others, even at an unconscious level. Now, I'm hoping at this point that you would at least agree with me that there is value in a church that sings together. I have found over the years, however, that there are three types of singers in the church. And I'm going to ask you to identify yourself in this list. Okay, The three different kinds of singers are the all-in singer, the kinda-in singer, and the never-in singer. The all-in singer is always singing, Clapping, dancing, jumping up and down. It's being a little bit loud sometimes. Regardless of ability though, uh, regardless of ability level, they are unashamed and they are definitely all in. Then there's the kinda in singer. Kind of in. Sometimes in, sometimes not. I do think that this group of people makes up the majority of church. They sing the songs they know, but maybe not the ones that aren't as familiar. They try to not be too loud for fear of being heard by somebody else. Um, this is the, the, the person who is scanning the room to, to see if, we're, if, we, if we should be standing or, or seated. Um, should we be raising our hands? Should we not be raising our hands? They're usually looking to do whatever the majority of the room is doing so that they fit in. And then there is the never-in singer. This is the person who sometimes stands up with the group, sometimes doesn't but never sings, never opens their mouth, Uh, usually is trying to find an opportunity to go get some more coffee during the worship set, Uh, hands in the pockets, which isn't a bad thing on its own, but it is definitely a defensive posture. Um, Maybe this is the person who secretly or not so secretly actually likes getting to church late because then they can sort of skip to the sermon, but there is a lack of willingness to use their voice. So the all-in, the kind-of-in, the never-in. And for a moment, I want to speak to the never-in crowd. My guess is that there's one of two reasons why you don't sing ever or sing in church. The first is that maybe you like the idea of singing. Maybe you listen to all the things that I just said to you and you're like, that sounds great, but when I go to produce a sound, the sounds that come out are not very good. 
and it makes me embarrassed. It makes me ashamed to use my voice because I, I, feel, I fear that it's a distraction to others when I use it. If that's you, we're going to talk in a second. Then I think there's a second group of people who are the never-in singers. And you maybe used to sing. You maybe even loved to sing at some point. But someone in your life at some point told you that you weren't good at it. And so you stopped singing altogether and haven't sung since. If you're in this category, let me be very clear. I would like to apologize on behalf of the person or people who said that to you. They were wrong. They were completely wrong. And so it doesn't matter necessarily what led you to not sing. What's important is to realize that you are designed to sing. You are invited to participate in singing. Now, first off, if you haven't sung in a long time, um, it'll make sense that your voice may produce sounds that aren't desirable. That's okay. That's what being out of practice means. It's, it's like it's rusty, right? And, and we solve that problem by using our voices more, by practicing. Every single time that we gather and sing, it's a time where you are invited and encouraged to practice with us. Singing itself is a spiritual practice or a spiritual discipline. Just like praying, just like reading the word, okay? And if you don't read very often, you'll likely struggle with reading. But is that a good enough reason to not read? Especially when we're commanded to do it, right? So there is an active invitation for you to participate with your voice. But this only works if the whole church agrees that we will not judge someone based on the shape that their voice is in. And I'll be completely honest with you, the people who are the worst at passing judgment on others are the people who are trained musicians. The people in that all-in camp that we talked about earlier. Now, it's not all of you. It's not everybody who's in that camp. But historically, at the variety of churches that I've led at, this is the group that makes the never-in singers feel like they don't belong. Okay? So we have to. We have to agree together that we will not judge each other based on the shape that our voices are in. Secondly, when you decide to use your voice, do not let the discomfort stop you. If we then agree that we are not going to judge people based on the shape that their voice is in, what we're also agreeing to is an encouragement to those people to continue to use them. Again, if you're out of practice and it's rusty, it's probably not going to feel very good at first. But the way you get through that is by continuing to use it, continuing to sing. There's a whole group around you to support you in your singing at church. Not to judge you, but to support you. And if you sing a wrong note, nobody cares. You will not ruin the worship, as I have heard so many people say. This fear that if they contribute their voice, it's going to ruin what's happening in the room. It's just not possible. In fact, the only possibility, the only outcome of your willingness to use your voice, even if it's just a whisper, is a net positive for the entire room. And lastly, let me say this. We are commanded to sing. 
There are over 400 references to singing in the Bible and more than 50 direct commandments to do so. I fear that this rides a fine line of conviction versus a guilt trip. But remember, there are no prerequisite tests to pass in order to be worthy of singing. The goal here is not to become the best singer in the room. The goal is to grow in comfort as you use your voice so that you can participate in something that is only ever going to be good for you and the people around you. When you make the decision to use your voice in the way that God intended for it to be used, you will not only change your life for the better, but you will change the lives of those around you. God will use your voice to bring glory to his name so long as you are willing to let him. So then how do we respond? First, find songs that make you want to sing and then sing them. They don't even have to be Christian songs or worship songs that we sing in church. Anything that you enjoy is worthwhile to sing to. If it's Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline, sing it. If it's Don't Stop Believing by Journey, sing it. Be in pursuit of songs that make you want to sing and then sing them. If singing is, is super uncomfortable for you, then sing one song a day. Do it in the car, do it in the shower, and do not worry about what it sounds like. Do it for the pure joy that it is, that it, that it will give you. Okay? Second thing I would encourage you to do is get nostalgic. Music reflects the society in which it was created, meaning that you should go find songs from your teen years, your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, and go sing along with them. It will transport you back to that time. If you're married, find the, find the Billboard Top 100 from the year of your wedding and pick a song on there and sing it. Singing songs that are familiar helps make singing more comfortable. And lastly, and probably most importantly, be gracious with yourself. Be gracious with yourself. Even the best singers in the world make sounds that they don't like. Remember that you are not being judged on your vocal ability. And when it comes to singing in the church, God cares significantly more about the posture of your heart than he does of your comfort level as a singer. I'll read you this this bit from Psalm 149 in conclusion. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praises in the assembly of the faithful. And this text is not even talking about singing new songs. It's about finding a new posture to be compelled to sing God's praises in the gathering of believers. Friends, I want to encourage you to step into this. And I know how challenging it could be and how vulnerable it is. But when God's people sing together, it bears a outrageously powerful witness to the gospel truth. It, it tells the person coming into your church that they belong there, that they are loved, that they are seen, that they are valued. There may not be a more impactful tool that we have at our disposal than to be able to sing with one another. So God bless you. Thank you for listening to this. I hope that you found it to be, uh, at least in some capacity, helpful. And um, until we see each other again, thanks.